When was the last time you heard some good news? Several weeks ago, my family was facing three big expenses. Our furnace wasn't working. Our car was having its 150,000-mile checkup, and we'd a consult with the orthodontist. Needless to say, it was good news when we learned that the furnace only needed a small part to fix it. The car amazingly had no issues, and the braces, well, they're still expensive, but there is a slight discount I was not aware of. Good news. There's good news, and there's good news. The weather looks good for travel over the holidays. The Vikings beat the Dolphins. Every employee gets a raise. And good news. Your longtime single aunt is now engaged to a man who adores her. The couple struggling with infertility is pregnant. The biopsy was negative. The family member who'd been estranged for years is now reconnecting with family and seems healthy. We all need to hear good news. Life is hard. It's not always evident this time of year with all the decorations, parties, and presents, but when you scratch below the surface of those bright, cheery smiles at the holiday party, you'll find each person is carrying some burden. And this is true on every level. Personally, who among us does not have a family member plagued by significant financial or health crises? Who among us does not have discord or tension when the family gathers? Nationally, have you listened to the news lately? We are a nation in crisis. We need help. And globally, war, poverty, millions of forcibly displaced people, natural disasters, and on and on. What news could there possibly be to alter how we see or experience these realities? I have good news for you this morning. It's really good news, but it's surprising, counterintuitive even, so it's easy to miss. In fact, people have been missing it for thousands of years since the first day the news was declared. And that's unfortunate, because in missing the news, people also miss out on the joy, the hope, the peace, and couldn't our world use some of that right now? The last four weeks, we've been on a journey to Bethlehem, where we've been taking a chronological look at the events leading up to Jesus' birth. Today, we come to the actual story of his birth. And the circumstances of Jesus' birth were unusual, to say the least. That's because, as we've seen each week this story unfolds, this is not just any baby. This is God's own son. We heard two weeks ago the angel tell Mary in describing the virgin birth, you will have a son, and he will be the son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne. His kingdom will never end. Last week, the angel told Joseph, Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So we know Jesus is a ruler on a throne and a rescuer from our wrongdoing, our world's brokenness. Our story today further describes just how Jesus rules and rescues, and it's quite surprising. Our passage for today is Luke 2, verses 1 to 20. I'm going to read it in its entirety, then we'll go back and look closer at each aspect of it. Luke 2, verses 1 to 20. 
In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who he was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Fancy words. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This passage can be divided into three sections. Number one, the event of Jesus' birth, verses one to seven. Number two, the interpretation of that event given by the angels in verses eight to 14. And finally, the response of all the people to that event. Let's look at each one of these in turn. First, the event itself in verses one to seven. Our story begins by describing a broader context. It was when Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Caesar Augustus is known in history as Gaius Octavian, the first and arguably the greatest Roman emperor who ruled from 31 BC to 14 AD. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, and he became the ruler of a Roman world after a bloody civil war in which he overpowered all rival claimants to the throne. Under his leadership, Rome's rule, Rome's rule expanded to include the entire Mediterranean and was marked by the famous Pax Romana, or period of Roman peace. Thanks to archaeological finds, we have actual documents of Roman censuses taken from nearby from 20 AD to 270 AD. We know historically that from time to time rulers would request a census, both for military and tax purposes. And when they did, each male and female over the age of 12 was required to go to their town of origin to register, not their current residence. The census provided not only a small head tax for each person, but also sent a clear message to their Jewish subjects. You are under Roman rule and oppression. Now, why am I mentioning this? 
Because the story of Jesus' birth is not a fairy tale that begins once upon a time. It happens in real time. It's rooted in historical figures and dates. We may disagree about what to make of the person of Jesus, but the fact that there was a person named Jesus in the first century is undisputed. But there's more. Our writer, Luke, wants us to see that even though Caesar is supposedly sovereign over the whole known world, we learn in verses 4 to 7 there's a higher power and purpose at work. The story zooms in on one man named Joseph, who we've met in the previous chapter. He resides in Nazareth, but he's from the town of Bethlehem. So in compliance with the decree, makes the 75-mile trek over three and four days. A very pregnant Mary accompanies him on this journey, presumably because she's from Bethlehem and must be registered, or perhaps given the scandalous circumstances surrounding their engagement, a baby out of wedlock, He doesn't want to leave her in small-town Nazareth in her time of need. In either case, it seems that the ruler of the whole known world is actually just fulfilling part of God's plan for his son to be born in Bethlehem. Luke is careful to emphasize what's most important about this pair in verse 5. Mary's pregnant, but she's not yet married to Joseph. Translation, this baby growing inside Mary is not Joseph's son. He is God's son via the Holy Spirit. The baby is born while they're in Bethlehem, verse 6, and Mary wraps him in the ordinary cloths used for newborns, the first century equivalent of baby burritos, verse 7. And she placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And here I am very sorry to burst any romantic notions of Jesus' birth in a remote barn after Joseph has gone door to door in between Mary's contractions looking for a place to stay. We often assume that from the words manger and inn. But the word manger can mean stable, as in a barn separate from a home, but it can also mean feeding trough. And the word sometimes translated inn is actually better translated guest room. Our author, Luke, uses this same word in Luke 22, 11, when he describes the room the disciples shared with Jesus in their last meal together. And in fact, he uses a different word in Luke 10, 34 to describe a commercial inn with an innkeeper. Now, when we understand what first century homes looked like, this makes more sense. First century homes had two levels. The ground level with kitchen space as well as a side area for animals for when it was cold or protection from predators, and the upper level where the family slept. So most likely, what Luke is describing here is that Joseph and Mary went to stay with one of Joseph's family members, but because so many people had come into town, all the bedrooms were full. So Mary and Joseph simply stayed in the side area where the animals were kept. The areas would have had feeding troughs or mangers cut, built into the side of the wall to feed the animals. Regardless, the point the writer is making is that everything in this description points to obscurity and poverty. And in fact, it is this obscurity that stands in direct contrast to the ruler at the time. Caesar and his wealthy royal palace counting his subjects, issuing decrees that affect the lives of many people, including one man who must make the trip with his very pregnant wife. And Jesus, born in a nondescript Jewish home as a helpless baby, seemingly at the mercy of Caesar's orders. 
So that's the event. Over 2,000 years ago, a baby was born in real time and in a real place. What then are we to make of this event? How are we to interpret it? The Bible gives us its interpretation of the event in verses 8 to 14 through the angel's message. Verse 8, and there were shepherds. Now, that's an interesting plot twist. In that culture, shepherds were on the bottom of the socioeconomic scale. They're about as opposite the urban elite as you can get. And yet, it is to them that the angel appears while they go about their menial business. The irony is not to be missed. Here's Caesar with his wealth and power, keeping tabs on all that's going on in the kingdom. Meanwhile, a miraculous birth occurs, and he doesn't even get the memo. The shepherds are the ones to whom the angel appears. This God does not follow the social norms, and anybody who's not at the top of the social strata can take great comfort in this. And to these unassuming and unexpected recipients, an angel lights up the night sky, inducing the usual response people seem to have to angels, terror. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord succinct but powerful words. But it isn't just that these words are powerful. It's how they're communicated. Verse 9, the glory of the Lord shone around them. Several weeks ago, we heard Jesus' relative Zacharias sing about Jesus' coming birthday, and he used this image by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness. There's an old adage in advertising. The medium is the message. Meaning the content of what you want to say is also communicated by the way in which you say it. The angels don't need a lot of words to communicate their message. They're using images Behold the first graphic designers. The medium is the message. A light has come to you in your darkness. But there isn't just visual overload here. There's auditory too. Verse 13. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace. The Latin translation of this verse, Gloria in Excelsis Deo, is how we get the words to the Christmas carol, Angels We Have Heard on High. I wonder just how long that song went on that night or what its melody was. Now, the angels don't say a lot about this, what this birth means. They've already told us much in the narrative thus far each time they've appeared. But the few words they do use pack more punch than we often realize because we're so far removed from the first century culture. Let's look at what the angel is doing with these phrases. I bring you good news. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Good news. Well, there's a double meaning here. To the Romans, good news was the way you announced the birth of the new emperor. Good news, he's born. To the Jewish people, the term good news 
was used for the long-awaited day when God himself would come to earth and rule with peace and justice. And it's into that context that the angel declares to the Jewish people living under Roman rule, I have good news for you. Translation, your ruler has been born. God himself has come to establish his reign of peace. What about Savior and Lord? We don't use those terms very often, but the Romans use them to describe emperors and other rulers. One inscription from 48 AD refers to Julius Caesar as God and Savior of human life. Augustus himself was described in one inscription as divine Augustus Caesar, son of a God, emperor of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. But to the Jewish people, Savior and Lord were reserved for God and God alone. God alone was the deliverer who rescued his people in the Old Testament. The word Lord was reserved for Yahweh alone. Do you see how these terms would catch both Roman and Jewish attention? The angels can't mean there's a new ruler. We have the greatest emperor, Caesar Augustus. The angels can't mean God is a mere human being. He's the almighty God for heaven's sake. Oh, yes, they do. There's a new ruler in town, a new rescuer. And yet, here is why so many missed it then as they do now. You wouldn't know it by looking at him. You wouldn't know it by the sign What's the sign of all this glory worthy of an angelic light show of the hallelujah chorus and rich titles vested with deep meaning? Prepare the motorcade, summon the press. No, quite the opposite. Verse 12, you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. There must be some mistake. A baby? In a makeshift cradle, will animals eat? Have you seen cows' tongues? One commentary I read this week noted how the wealth of all these titles and valid acclamations stand in direct contrast to the poverty of the sign. Why? Because the medium is the message. This is our God. This is how he comes to us. Not with fanfare or pride, not with military might or coercion, not with winsome speech manipulating our emotions, not with money or fame that we might be wooed for the wrong reasons. He comes as a helpless little baby, a squawking, needy baby, lying in a makeshift food bowl for animals. Not because he belongs there, heavens no. If he'd gotten what he deserved, the angelic choir would have been just the beginning. But because he identifies that much with his creation, because of what Zechariah calls the tender mercy of our God. Like, say, the tenderness of a mother with her child. The medium is the message. This king rules not by power, but by weakness, not by force, but by vulnerability, not like Caesar with a sword, but instead by allowing himself to be pierced with the sword, to be put to death, as it were, for the sake of others. He rules with humility and rescues with unprecedented self-giving love. 
What better image of humility and love than a helpless little baby cradled in the arms of his mother? The first Christians wrote a song about Jesus' humility. It's recorded for us in Philippians 2. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The interpretation the angels give of the event that night is that unbeknownst to Caesar, who thinks he's the ruler of the known world, a new ruler has just been born. And this ruler will usher in a reign of joy and peace. And not Pax Romana peace, but biblical peace, shalom, where everything crooked is made straight, where justice and mercy are the common currency where suffering and evil do not get the last word. And he will do so. He will rescue through surprising means. He will do so through sacrificial love. St. Paul put it like this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that through him we might come to God. But it's so easy to miss. It's so easy to miss this ruler-rescuer because it doesn't fit with our notions of power. A baby in a manger, a man dying on the cross, the signs don't seem very positive. They don't seem very powerful. We better put our hope and trust in something else or someone else. Maybe there is no hope. I imagine that's how many of his followers felt after his death, when some 30 years after this infant was wrapped wrapped in cloths and placed in a feeding trough. That same body, according to Luke 23, 53, was once again wrapped in cloths, but this time for burial. And three days later, an angel again delivers them good news. Jesus is alive. He has beaten sin and death. His rule will never land. You can't keep him down. And all who trust in him can also be free from all oppression and sin and death. But it takes a long time for all this to play out. In fact, we are still waiting for all this to play out. In the sequel to Luke's book, Acts, we're told by the angels in Luke 1, 9 to 11, just after Jesus ascends to heaven in his resurrected body, he's going to come back a second time. The rest of the Bible makes clear that when he comes that second time, it will look very different. No obscurity then. Listen to how that early song from Philippians captures his return. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The world may have missed his first coming, but there will be no missing his second coming. Talk about a light show or angelic choir event. A baby is born over 2,000 years ago during the reign of Caesar Augustus. Interpretation. This little baby is God himself come to save us. 
And the medium is the message. His trademark signs are humility and self-giving love. So, how are we to respond to that? How did the people respond to that? Let's look very briefly at verses 15 to 20 as we conclude. Mary, verse 19 says, treasured up and pondered all these things in her heart. She was closest to the action after all. Imagine how encouraging the shepherd's tale must have been to her when there was still so much she didn't understand. Maybe it provided just the right encouragement at just the right time. The townspeople in Bethlehem weren't quite sure what to make of this wild story the shepherds told. Verse 18 describes them as amazed, neither positive nor negative. They're not really all ready to go in. They're just intrigued enough to keep watching. They're curious. I think that's a great response to have. I mean, if this whole thing is indeed true, then it is of utmost importance. It deserves some thought and inquiry. We shouldn't expect any less. So if that's where you are today, let me encourage you. Keep watching. Keep listening. God honors those who sincerely seek him. I mean, even the shepherds who, by the end, are glorifying and praising God, can't do that until they first go and check out what they've been told. They need more reassurance than just a light show or an angelic choir, though that did grab their attention. But once they check out this thing, I mean, how do you even describe this? They overflow with praise to God. A fitting response to seeing the one true king clothed in humility and love. I don't know what you're facing this morning, but I do have good news for you. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. A Savior has been born for you. He is Christ the Lord. Just look for the sign. Let's pray. Oh God, it is indeed mystery that we are encountering through your word. How can this be? The God of the universe wrapping yourself in human flesh that you might live the life we could not live and die on our behalf that we can join you in the life that is really life. Help us by your spirit to enter into this reality in a unique way this season, that you may fill us with your joy and peace and hope that we would go into your world as lights for Jesus' sake and in whose name we are waiting his second return. Amen.